from Wyoming Public Media. This, this, this is this is spoken 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 words spoken words. This is spoken words. I'm Micah Schweitzer. In Chapter One, the entire island of Manhattan has been sliced loose from the surface of the Earth, put under a dome, and placed aboard a gigantic spaceship. This time we'll hear from John Stith, a science fiction novelist living in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Although the adventures in Stith's novels are based in a futuristic world of what if, Stith says inspiration for his writing comes from his roots in the West. One way my job history influenced my work was that uh, my first industry job when I got out of the college was working in the NORAD Cheyenne Mountain Complex in Colorado near Colorado Springs. That was a fascinating environment, and it wound up being the setting for my first novel, which was called Scapescope. In it, I imagined uh, well into the future, you know, heavily populated Earth, big dysfunctional government that's now become Brother Sammy instead of Uncle Sam. And in it, I imagined a group of dissidents would have bought the Cheyenne Mountain Complex as uh, surplus, and they now had their base of operations there, and the story took our hero to that location. Stith says his early inspiration came from the spare moments when he could find time to write, but it wasn't always smooth sailing. For Stith, he says it was a long and difficult process to go from a regular industry employee to a full-time writer. It took a lot of time, time off, and determination to get where he is today. Early on, uh, I spent a lot of time wanting to be a writer. (laughs) So that slowed down the process. When I finally got out of that stage and decided if I was going to be a writer, I had to do it every day rather than waiting for inspiration or a five-hour block. Then I started writing 15 minutes every day. And that, that habit is what really got me started. And then for several years, I wrote during, while I was, you know, employed, I wrote before I went to work and during my lunch hour, and then I rewrote in the evening. And eventually, as a full-time writer, I had more luxury to you know, write kind of whatever schedule worked during the day. I, I did not ever have a regular, I will write between 8 and, and 2, uh, no matter what. I, I let life fit in around the edges. And then I had a, a significantly long spell where I was not writing for a while my uh, my agent was not liking anything I proposed, uh, and that uh, that slowed me down. And I was near the end of that period when my, my dad died and my mom came to live with us. And her last couple of years were difficult as she, you know, declined. And about a year after she died, my wife uh, contracted cancer, and she had a four-year battle with cancer that ended in her death. And and then uh, a few years later, I got married again, and life is stable again, happy again, and and I can concentrate on, on writing, and I'm getting a lot done. But I'm, I'm just not one of those people who can write through anything. Uh, you know, there are all kinds of writers, all kinds of I know people who can dictate books, books while they're out on hikes. I, I can't do that. I, I need kind of a delicate balance of, of time and energy and motivation and inspiration. And, and I've got that again. But finding the will and the time to write is only part of the process, Stith says. 
The other challenge for sci-fi writers lies with the constant need to appeal to and appease the laws of nature. Generally, hard science fiction is meant to, to say that you do your best to adhere to the rules of known science. You, you don't just make things up out of whole cloth. We take some liberties when it comes to, for instance, uh, interstellar travel. At least we use notions that are tossed around as possible, but you know, there's no way we can be certain of some of them yet. Uh, and stories involving time travel take a lot of finagling because they're, you know, time travel to the past is either impossible or, or you know, beyond our uh, knowledge base at this point. But in general, I, I mean, you know, I've seen action movies, for instance, where I've seen a character, and, and this is not a science fiction action movie, this is just some action movie where a character uh, jumps out the window, the third story window, and lands on the ground unhurt. That kind of violation of the basic laws of physics won't fly in hard science fiction. On the flip side of trying to write scientifically plausible stories, Stith also considers the fiction side of storytelling as a sort of forecaster of real social movements, movements that could or not happen in the future. I, I think uh, science fiction can be a predictor of social change, but it's, it's more in the vein of, not, it's not so much in the vein of saying, this is exactly how I think things are going to happen. It's more in the vein of exploring possibilities, trying out various ideas and saying, uh, you know, what are some of the logical consequences if we go down this road? And so we get to do thought experiments on a comparatively painless basis. You know, we don't have to to, for instance, the thing about recent news, we don't have to vote yes or no on Brexit and then find out what what that's all going to mean in, in reality. We can, we, we can do some thought experiments ahead of time and figure out al alternatives. And, and we get things wrong a lot of times. Uh, you know, very few people predicted uh, video from the first moon landing. Moon landing. Uh, and yet, books like 1984, I think, you know, we're still falling, falling into the trap that Orwell was worried about, but I think we haven't fallen in it as deeply as we might have without his cautionary tale. So I think warnings about some of these obviously bad alternatives and group consideration and feedback and discussions about some of the possible choices on our, on our horizon are, are helpful. Plus entertainment. <laughs> Manhattan Transfer, the book Stith shares with us now, is an example of his later work and a demonstration of how far one's imagination can stretch. Matt and the others reached the stairs to the street without finding any lighting other than the occasional emergency lamps. From the distance came the sounds of crying and a mass of mumbling people. Matt watched his footing carefully and kept checking on the injured man. When they reached ground level, they moved past some people cowering near the wall. Instead of the daylight Matt had expected, he found night. Suspended over Manhattan was a reflected image of a darkened city lit only by the headlights of buses, cabs, trucks, and cars stalled and abandoned in the gridlocked streets. 
The sidewalks were lined with people in clumps, staring up at the distorted reflections. Here and there, a person lay flat on the ground. Someone, maybe half a block away, wailed steadily. One of the men in the foursome wobbled a bit, then recovered. Down the block was an ambulance caught in the traffic snarl. They threaded their way through the people on the sidewalk and street. When they reached an open area and walked faster, Matt almost lost his footing. The pavement seemed too smooth, no doubt thanks to the low gravity, allowing less friction. The ambulance attendants stood on the pavement next to their open doors, both looking up at the sky. We've got someone who needs your attention, Matt said to the driver. It took a moment for the driver to focus on Matt and start to react to what he was saying, but after a few seconds his training must have taken over, and he and the other attendant started to put the man with no hand onto a stretcher. Matt got back to the curb just as a bright light came on in the sky to the west of the city. A round spot the size of the sun penetrated the reflected images over the skyline and began to grow brighter. A hush fell over the people on the sidewalks and in the street. The sun grew brighter and brighter until it hurt to look at it, and the city streets lightened until they were as bright as day. When the sun reached what seemed to be its maximum intensity, the dome started losing its reflectivity and in stages began to grow transparent. Matt moved a few steps so he could see better to the east. The first thing he realized was that although his memory told him the Brooklyn Bridge should be in view, it wasn't. Rather, all it showed was a stub of the bridge. The dome continued to increase in transparency, and Matt felt his mouth go dry. He could see through the dome, and what he saw didn't bear any resemblance at all to Brooklyn. Instead, the island of Manhattan rested on a vast gray plain. In the distance was another dome sitting on the plain, and to its left another. Slightly farther away than the pair was yet another dome. Matt shifted position again as the crowd came to life with screams and loud voices. He could see two more domes in the distance. Beneath the other domes were what seemed to be other cities. One a jumble of prismatic arches, another what looked like one enormous building, another a mass of needle-thin spires with halos near the top. And even someone much less well-traveled than Matt would have instantly known these cities had never existed on Earth. That's John Stith reading from his novel Manhattan Transfer. This episode was produced by Brooklyn Gray and Ammon Medina. I'm Micah Schweitzer. Spoken Words is a collaboration between the University of Wyoming's MFA in Creative Writing program and Wyoming Public Media.